0: Welcome back to The Queer Queue. I'm Lena.
1: And I'm Nick. And we are joined here today by Susan Stryker, a queer historian and professor, filmmaker, and consultant who is well known for bringing to light the Compton Cafeteria riots that preceded Stonewall, as well as a consultant when it comes to trans historical figures and trans narratives like Christine Jorgensen and documentaries such as Netflix's Disclosure, with Sam Feder and Raven Cox, Queer filmmaker Chase Joints, No Ordinary Man, and HBO's The Lady and the Dale, the Sacri Director. Uh, thank you so much, Susan, for being here with us today.
2: Hey, thanks, thanks for having me. i you know, love to come and talk about queer and trans history in film. So, you know, I'm already having a good
0: time. Yeah. Thank you so much. Like um, my introduction into queer and trans history um, when I studied at SF State was through your work, Susan Stryker. So like right now I kind of feel a little bit starstruck as uh, uh, just because I love history and as a fellow historian, I think uh, having you on here is great. Just wanted to say that. you can't see it you know in the podcast but I'm making the heart symbol
2: with my my fingers so yeah thanks for saying that
0: of course um so I guess what we want to start off by asking is what is your process like as an indie queer filmmaker in the entertainment industry well you know I I I think of
2: I mean well I do definitely consider myself a filmmaker and, you know, had some success with um, Screaming Queens, the riot at Compton's cafeteria, which was you know, the, the documentary film I made with Victor Silverman about the 1966 Compton's cafeteria riot. Uh, you know, that that film definitely opened some doors for me in terms of connecting me with other filmmakers. But I would say, you know, my, my process has been much more like rather than being a a film maker um you know mostly I've been a film consultant you know just like I I would while I you know definitely have some ideas for other projects I'm trying to get some things off the ground most of my working life in the last you know 15 years has has really been as a as a professor teaching at a university teaching uh, you know, gender and women's studies, queer and trans history, um, and um, my my film work um, has mostly been one, uh, starting a, a kind of avant-garde experimental film and media project called Christine in the Cutting Room, which has been about um, uh, the 1950s era trans celebrity Christine Jorgensen's work as both a celebrity and a filmmaker, you know, sort of using a project about her to like ask some more kinds of theoretical questions about the relationship between film, film, filmmakers and film um, and really thinking about Jorgensen's uh, gender transition as something that was very much informed by her own uh, training as a photographer and filmmaker and film editor. Um, uh, so there was that project, but mostly, like I said, I, I've consulted and done uh, talking head stuff on um, on bigger budget film projects. Um, you know, you, you did mention several that I'd been connected with in that, that introduction. So um, in the past year, let's see, it's been uh, Disclosure on Netflix. I was a consulting producer on that and had... Uh, some FaceTime as a talking head. Um, uh, I was in Chase Joint's No Ordinary Man, um, uh, which is about the, the Billy Tipton story, a, a mid 20th century uh, trans masculine jazz musician. Um, I, I felt like I had a r- really good working relationship with uh, Duplass Brothers and Zachary Drucker for the show Lady and the Dale. Uh, you know, so that I was able not just to, you know, sort of do, you know, do, do what I call being the transplaner, you know, on screen, uh, but also being a little bit more involved in some of the 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 storytelling and um, uh, r- writing some of the, the voiceover scripts uh, that that was very fun to be involved in. Um, there was another film by Monica Troit, uh, a German experimental lesbian filmmaker who back in 1999 made a film called Gender Knots that, that I was in. Um, that was about the you know, sort of turn of the millennium trans scene in San Francisco. And she's just made a follow-up film called Genderation. And kind of like, oh, where are they now? You know, 20, 20 years on uh, that premiered at the, the Berlinale. And yeah, other stuff. I I um I did some script consulting on uh, Netflix's Tales of the City. Um I, you know, also was talking with people back in the day about that film, the the Danish Girl. You know, it's like I was hired as a historical consultant on that. They didn't take any of my advice, but you know, so be it. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I would say I, you know, kind of got my fingers in the pie of, you know, maybe, you know, 10 or 15 projects that are in some stage of development right now in, in Hollywood. And, you know, most of those things will never go anywhere. And, you know, some of them might hit. Um, so what is it like for me as a queer indie filmmaker? Um, yeah, I'm kind of trying to up my game right now and like get more consulting gigs and see if I can open some doors to, um, you know, to get funded to do projects of my own, rather than just consulting on, on other people's projects, and I, I feel like I'm in a good place to do that, you know, I, um, I feel like I'm kind of winding down as an academic, I'm, you know, it's like I've made full professor, you know, I've written books, I've started programs and journals, I've hired people, you know, it's just like I've I, I've done it and I enjoy it, but, you know, I'm kind of wondering, well, can I have a third act, you know, can I, can I, um, can I have a post academic career doing more public facing work doing trans historical storytelling on large, you know, commercial projects that reach huge audiences, you know, I think I'm ready to do that and we'll see if it happens and if it doesn't happen, you know, I can't say that I didn't take my shot, you know, so. Um, that's
1: kind of where I am right now yeah like you know um we definitely can't wait to discuss what you're looking to do what specific projects in the future um you brought up consulting a lot and you know um we recently saw you on fx's pride limited series so yeah you were consulting (laughs) on that yeah and you know disclosure lady with Dale. And, um, you know, I feel like we have a good idea of what the experience was like consulting on those documentaries um, and docu-series. And we wanted to know what that experience was like versus, you know, um, your experience with the Danish girl. You mentioned briefly that that the suggestions that you had made as a historical consultant were not taken. So, You know, just what has the experience been like working with queer and trans creators versus um, the people behind The Danish Girl?
2: You know, I I would say that two of the most fun projects for me were working on Disclosure and working on Lady in the Dale. And some of that is just because, like, I have known Sam, the director, you know, for years and years, and I have been talking with him about that project um, for a long time. Um, I can actually tell you a funny story about it in just a minute. Um, um, so, you know, I, I love it when I can get involved in a project early enough to like help shape what the overall project looks like. Um, the same thing had happened with um, The Lady and the Dale with um, with Zachary Drucker, uh, that again, Zachary is somebody I've just known for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, as she was like getting the, kind of the nod to be the executive producer and later co-director of The Lady and the Dale, you, know, she had wanted to bring me in, you know, as uh, you know the a person who could kind of help um, bridge some of the different scenes to kind of explain some of the issues that were at, at stake. And you know some of the 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 writing of the the different episodes it, you know I, I was able to um, you know they, they were basically able to say things like, okay, like here's here's the scene that we've just shot with an interviewee. And here's the next thing that we need to address, but we need the connective tissue that gets us from point A to point B. So could you give us some words about you know this, and then you know I could kind of spiel on that, or you know I could you know they, they just they they just made really good use of me. I would say you know I felt like um, I was able to really bring what I know to bear on how that show turned out. So like I said, yeah, that's the thing that I like best when I can like tell people a cool story that they want to like incorporate into what they're doing or i can help finesse uh, the historical interpretation or provide some nuance or you know sometimes even just do some very basic you know kind of trans 101 explaining for a mainstream audience that might not uh, get what's going on um the the story about disclosure so a number of years ago I was talking with Zachary Drucker and she said oh I've just you know been in conversation with Laverne Cox you know like we're talking about wanting to do um like a trans history documentary series or something we sort of wanted to bring you in and I was like yeah yeah I would love that you know so I had met with Zachary and Laverne and um you know things look really exciting for a, a hot minute and then you know like a couple of weeks into the process Laverne wrote and said hey you know I've been thinking about it and actually there's this other project that I think is a better fit for me so I'm going to back out and I was just like ah damn you know it's like too bad and then like within like an hour like Sam Fader was emailing me going Susan Susan guess what Laverne Cox wants to come on as executive you know producer for you know my for my, my my film Disclosure you know it's like and you know I was consulting producer on that. So it's like, as far as I was concerned, it was a, it was a win-win. but it just I just thought it was such a funny example of at some level what a small world trans filmmaking is, you know, that's like it's like this the same hundred people, you know, I know who are doing such amazing things right now. Um, I think it's a really exciting time to be a trans. Media maker that there has been in the past couple of years, I would just say a, a a qualitative shift in the kinds of projects that are getting made, the kinds of access that people have in the you know the mainstream Hollywood film industry. Uh, I think the stories that are being told are a lot more sophisticated. I think they're getting much bigger audiences. So yeah, it's just a really sort of exciting time to have a you know sort of a toe in the water of the Hollywood film industry. And, you know, I, I just am looking forward to, you know, more opportunity to work at um, the sort of a d- deeper and greater level in the industry, you know? It's just like, I'm, I'm not holding my breath. It's a tough, a tough racket to break into, you know? Um, but um, but yeah, you know, I'm actively working, you know, to see if I can make make something happen for me there. You know, actually got a got a number of projects I'm interested in. Happy, happy to you know talk with you about you know any of my any of my fantasy projects. So um, anyway, yeah. maybe I'll, I'll just leave it there for now.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, will definitely want to hear more about those fantasy projects. Um, stepping back just a little bit, um, going back to I'm kind of intrigued about Screaming Queens on the documentary. Um, if you can explain how that kind of came to be, your process from finding those documents, um, finding that historical, cause you know, like Stonewall riots has always been like in the media as uh, seen as this turning point uh, for a uh, gay liberation movement. So c- kind of talk me t- through, uh, talk us through about finding that historical event to creating that documentary.
2: So I first stumbled across a mention of the Compton's cafeteria riot, must've been like around like 1991 or 92, Long time ago now, uh, and <clears throat> I was intrigued. <clears throat> you know, it was something that I found just a, a little, you know, d- little description in a file of the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco that suggested that in August of 1966, like drag queens and trans women and sex workers and um, you know, unhoused queer youth in the Tenderloin neighborhood in San Francisco uh, fought back against. Police violence, you know, that there was this all night cafeteria called Gene Compton's Cafeteria. Um, It was a place that, you know, people would hang out late at night just to get off the street, you know, like buy a cup of coffee and sit there for a long time. Uh, And that the police would, you know, would very regularly raid the place. And one night in August of 1966, um, when the police were trying to arrest the, you know, so-called street queen, she fought back and just pandemonium erupted and, and you know, there was street fighting outside the cafeteria with police, you know, vans pulling up and police cars getting set on fire and, you know, windows being broken out and, you know, some exciting times. And I, I, you know, I had never heard about this. I mean, you, you just mentioned, it's like Stonewall, it's like everybody's heard about Stonewall. It's like, well, here was a very similar kind of event three years earlier that nobody had ever heard of. And I thought, well, you know, that's up with that, you know? So I just had curiosity for a while, you know, it's like I, I was working at the GLBT Historical Society, I had a lot of time to spend in the archives, and anytime I found some little sliver of information about what happened at Compton's, I would, you know, put it in a file. But it took me years, you know, like of kind of like gathering puzzle pieces before I started to see the picture on the puzzle emerge, you know. And so by around 1998, I thought, well, damn, you know, it's like I think, I think this riot really happened. I think it, you know, happened pretty much as it was described in that one source that I found. And uh, I I think it would be great to tell this story in public. Um, I mean, back in the day, there was still an awful lot of um, I would say friction between trans and cis people in the LGBT community, and there was a sort of there was a lot of pushback to the idea that trans people participated at Stonewall. You know, it's like, oh, you know, Sylvia and Marsha, they were lying; they weren't really there you know um you know it was you know white white gay people basically who you know who who did this and i just thought well you know here's here's this other event that clearly you know is motivated by police harassment and violence against gender non-conforming people of, you know, whatever identity label we want want to use for them. And so like, why not tell this story that basically just almost like a, not like a corrective to the Stonewall story, but to just say like, look, let's like stop fighting about Stonewall. Here's this other story that we can tell about militant resistance coming from trans people, you know, against the structural violences that they face. And let's just tell that story. and, you know, I, I I thought about, well, how should I best tell the story? And I thought, you know, why not a film? You know, I'm just like, why not a film? Uh, if I write an article, you know, it's like, man, eh, it's gonna be in a, you know, academic history journal, or it'll be a magazine piece someplace. People will read it, they'll forget about it. They'll just sort of move on. And I just thought, well, you know, it's film that reaches the biggest audience. Um, and that's what I wanna do. It's like, I want, to tell the story in a way that people will start to remember it as something that happened. Like, you know, none of us were at Stonewall but we remember that it happens. You know, I wanted to do the same kind of work to help people remember that confidence had happened. And, you know, I'll just say I'd never made a film before um, but I'd always loved film. I mean, I was, you know, like I was a little, you know film nerd from, you know, childhood forward. I mean, and I'd always had my you know, like I'd always been involved in film somehow, you know, like in college, I ran a film series, you know, um, in graduate school, I had a, a film watching club, you know, when back in the DCR days, um, you know, I'd been involved with Frameline, the LGBT film festival in San Francisco. So, I mean, I just love, I love film, you know, it's it's like, you know, and I kind of thought, well, you know, like. I'd love to eat. I should learn to cook. You know, I like to read. I should try to write something some days. Like I love movies at some point, maybe I should try to make a film, you know, but I hadn't really gone beyond that until I found the Compton story and thought, you know, I think this is the thing that I want to learn to be a filmmaker over. It's like, this is the story that found me and now I want to tell it in public. And so I, I, it just so happened that I was applying for a Postdoctoral fellowship um, at that time, and and I was applying for a postdoc to study San Francisco's transgender history. And as part of the application, you had to have a dissemination plan for your research findings. And I said I want to make a documentary film that would be suitable for public television as my dissemination strategy. And I got the grant, so you know I got the postdoc. And so it's like, well, here we go. I felt very fortunate that I had a, a friend, this guy, Victor Silverman, somebody I'd known, you know, in grad school, we were you know, like, our kids were best buddies. I mean, he was just somebody that I had known, you know, he was, in my, he was in the same department as me. And, you know, we were just good friends and he was also really interested in filmmaking. And we just decided, you know, that we would make the film together. And we did, took us, Seven years. I mean, I worked on that film between 1998 and 2005, uh, which was longer than I, you know, spent writing my dissertation when I was in grad school. But, um, you know, I have to say I was pleased with how it turned out. You know, it's like we, I think largely it was on the strength of the story that we had to tell, you know, that we were successful in getting funding for it. Ultimately, we we were able to get a production agreement with ITVS, uh, which is a nonprofit organization that works with independent media producers to develop content that's suitable for public television broadcasts. So the bulk of our funding came through our production agreement with ITVS. Um, and, you know, when I, when I look back, you know, and we were sort of closing out the books on the, the project, I think we did the whole thing for a little bit more than $250,000. And as we were sort of Closing out the books on the project, um, you know, we figured that there was like thirty-five thousand dollars worth of wastage, you know, in the project. It's like, oh, we we hired somebody who turned out wasn't a good fit with the project, and you know, lost a bunch of hours and salary, and you know, it's like had to hire somebody else, you know, to do some of the the work, or we, you know, we thought, oh no, we don't need to like pay for transcripts of, of the, our interviewees it's like we'll just take really good notes and you know final cut and you know, that'll that'll be fine we, we don't need to be able to do a paper cut we'll cut some corners there that was that was a mistake uh, so so. Um, but anyway, $35,000 of wastage on the project. And I, I said to Victor, I said, you know, at the end of the day, that's $17,500 for each of us, which is way cheaper than going to film school, you know. And, um, you know, we we learned on the job. We found a good community of people to work with, definitely felt supported by the queer indie film scene in San Francisco. You know, you had people who volunteered for the project, you know, people who worked at below their rates for us, you know, people who gave us lots of technical assistance and encouragement and, you know, letter writing for grants. And, and you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, we had a film that won a, uh, an Emmy award for, you know, the best, quote, best, cultural and historical documentary or special you know not not one of the big high-profile you know nat- national Emmys but you know I I do have that little gold gold statue sitting on the mantelpiece above the fireplace in, in the living room which which was pretty cool and I thought you know like not not bad you know for a first-time filmmaker and that I think really gave me the confidence to go like yeah I, I I can do this you know so yeah it was a great a great um a great experience getting my feet wet in filmmaking through making that film, *Screaming Queens*.
1: Yeah, you know, and it was such such a huge process. And *Screaming Queens*, it's it's a landmark film just for queer history, queer liberation, you know, queer film in general. Um, you know, something that we really love to hear about. And you you provided us some anecdotes about the the production of it. You know, we'd love to hear. You know what are, what are some of the things that occurred, you know, some of the anecdotes that really surprised you, you know, that, you know, um, were revelations when creating, um, Screaming Queens, as well as working on Christine and the Cutting Room?
2: You know, I, will say one of the things that was most rewarding about making, um, Screaming Queens is that, you know, we, we did a lot of sort of Walk and talk and B-roll shooting, uh, in the Tenderloin neighborhood in San Francisco, which is a really hard neighborhood. It is very poor. There is a lot of crime. There are a lot of people who really struggle with with substance addiction. Um, um, you know, it's it's just a, it's just a hard knock neighborhood, and people are very protective of themselves there. It's like when you're walking around with a camera, it's like people will get right up in your face, like not wanting you know, their poverty to be exploited somehow or, you know, turned into a spectacle or saying like, hey, if you're, you know, shooting footage, it's like, and I'm in it, you need to pay me, you know, Um, and just, you know, being really, you know, direct, you know, with people that who they think might be exploiting them. And so, you know, when when we were saying like, yeah, you know, I hear you, and we're actually making a documentary film. It's like in that building right over there in 1966. It's like sex workers and people would go to this old cafeteria who was located that was located there. It's like they fought back against the police. It's like it was this nationally significant event that happened here. And they would say, like, really, like right here, like in the in the tenderline, it's like something important happened. It's like, yeah, like right there. And like they would love, people in the neighborhood loved. Hearing the story that, that they didn't know, you know, about something important that happened and in their neighborhood. And it wasn't just like a, a trans story or a queer story. It was like people living in a really marginalized neighborhood who were just really hungry for some kind of validation that their lives mattered and that where they lived was a place of some significance one of my favorite parts of the whole movie making process was just talking to people on the streets and getting this really visceral sense of how transformative and empowering knowledge of, you know, history can be, you know, in ways that you just like never, you know, that, that, that wasn't what I went into the project thinking was going to happen, you know, that, um, you know, I thought, well, it might be important for queer and trans people, you know, to hear this story, and I just really didn't have a sense of a broader significance for it. So that was that was very cool. On the Christine and the Cutting Room project, I have to say I'm really interested in getting back to that. It's like I started it, I made parts of it, and then I kind of had to put it aside for a while because of my other work responsibilities. But the the idea there uh, was, you know. For if, if your listeners don't know who Christine Jorgensen was, it's like in 1952, there were these banner headlines in newspapers around the world, you know, XGI becomes blonde beauty, you know, it was the first time that um, a trans person who had undergone medical transition became a celebrity for having done so. Um, and, you know, and Jorgensen, you know, it's like, there are complicated reasons for why, even though Jorgensen was not the first medically transitioning trans person, why her story became kind of the kind of the Caitlyn Jenner moment, you know, of her generation, you know, like it just totally blew up in the media. Um, a lot of reasons why that happened that maybe we won't go into now. But, you know, what, what fascinated me about Jorgensen is that on the one hand, she wasn't an, an image, you know, it's like she kind of like created an image of herself. She was a celebrity, you know, she was seen. But that what I learned in doing research about her was that she had always wanted to be a filmmaker. She trained as a professional photographer she went to photography school and you know worked as a commercial photographer she worked at RKO um, in the newsreels division um, doing um, film editing that she edited newsreels and that you know she had she had aspirations you know but they were all behind the camera you know right and so kind of what I figured out in researching her was like here's this person who technically knows how to make film, who is working in the film industry, who I just think she had this kind of light bulb moment of going like, wait, it's like I'm cutting media and splicing it together um, to create an image and tell a story that you project for an audience to receive. And you know, she just saw this way of like, wait, it's like if I can get somebody to cut the medium of my own body and stitch it together in a different pattern, that body projects a different image in the world that is seen by an audience. You know, and like and she, you know, kind of she she orchestrated the 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 circumstances of her own appearing in public as a trans person because of how she knew how to make media. You know, she actually said in in an interview with Mike Wallace, um, you know, who was on 60 Minutes for a long time. She says, you know, Mike, I used to work on one side of the camera because I didn't know how to appear on the other side. You know, and I just thought about, it's like a light bulb went off in my head about like, oh, it's like, can we think about trans, you know, mid 20th century, you know, so-called transsexual, you know, medical, you know, surgical hormonal transition as kind of a, you know, a, a media cutting and image making technology, you know, just like that it's not just the image on the screen, but it's the image of, you know, it, it's the image of the filmmaker in a sense. It's like that, that the media maker is like kind of chiasmatically, you know, reversing um, what we see. You know, just like that, you see the thing that is behind the camera. You see the body of the person who actually is undergoing a kind of transformation, according to a sort of cinematic logic. You know, of, of of image making and suturing and splicing, and you know that that the idea of the cut, you know, being something that is, you know, like from film theory, it's like you know, the cut is actually where the narrative comes from, right, it's like you're you're putting together different pieces of film, you know, that weren't together before, and that juxtaposition of material through the cut is what generates your story, that's how the story gets told. And in, you know, so much of the medical discourse um, about cutting and surgery, it's like, it's always imagined as loss, you know, oh, you're cutting something off, you're cutting something out, you know, and that it's all about subtraction, it's about being less than, you know, it's it's um, some, something subtractive, and to kind of flip around that trope of like trans surgery not as the loss of something but as a generative cut that allows people to change narrative and create new image just like why not use film theory to like talk about trans history you know um and and so that's what christine in the cutting room is about you know it's something that Uses uh, sort of collage style found footage filmmaking with like flash editing, you know, creating this uh, rapid fire montage of images of Jorgensen with other uh, contextualizing images from mass media and pop culture in the 1950s. Uh, And then I wrote a voiceover script, you know, from Christine Jorgensen's perspective. And so the idea of the film is that you've got Christine Jorgensen posthumously speaking from what I was calling inside the cut of the film. You know this idea of a trans voice coming from this interstitial space that's not being visually represented, and then using the sort of fictive narrative uh, from Jorgensen's perspective to both explain her career and to explore the you know, the processes of media making by her and around her. So hence the title, Christine in the cutting room, you know, that she, her her life story could be thought of as like moving from the cutting room at RKO Studios to the cutting room in a, you know, sex reassignment clinic in in Denmark. And, um, you know, it, it, I've been kind of using the project to to think with, you know, it's like, it's like, on the one hand, I do want to make the film, and I imagined it as a series of cuts, you know, like little short films that all almost like a, you know, an old, you know, concept album, you know, from a prog rock band or something, you know, it's like individual little cuts that all add up to an album uh, that's bigger than any one of the individual tracks. and. I've made um, three of those short films that will add up to the total project. I feel like I've got maybe four more to do. Um, but what, what the project really taught me was that making film can in fact be a way of thinking critically. It's not just like, it's, I mean, it's not just um, that in, in the making of the work, you learn something through that process of making that you wouldn't know just from like reading or thinking without having done so that you learned something through the the tactility and materiality of the, the making process and so it's almost like. You know, it, it's like a, a theory film or it's like, it's a film that um, like lets me explore ideas. It's kind of like, kind of like oh, like I've got this idea. Let's see if I can render that in film. and What do I learn from the process of making that that informs the idea that made me curious about it. So it's like may, may, <clears throat> turning filmmaking into a process of theorizing trans embodiments you know, and then learning that by making a film about a trans person who was also a media maker and making media about that, you know, so there's lots of sort of, for me, like interesting kinds of loops and circles and, and um, echoes, you know, when the, the content and the making process and the theory that's, that's driving it. So it's just like, I'm fascinated with the project and, you know, I'm really eager to get back to it and try to finish it up and have it out there
0: yeah, um, we're definitely uh, waiting for it. Uh, we're huge fans of it when we saw it. Um, and I definitely, when you're talking about the collage style, and I think you embedded a lot of like different music that was a bit kind of anachronistic um, yeah. into it. And I thought it was just like, it was one of the most like fresh and original uh, styles that I've seen in a while. And I'm just very excited to see um, what else you're going to add to it. Oh, thank you for
2: that. Yeah, yeah, you know, I I definitely... You know, I was I was thinking not just about the image, but about the whole sort of embodied experience of of interacting with the film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the theorists I was thinking of, I mean, a couple of people. I mean, I, I love Vivian Sopchak's, you know work on film, the sort of the the phenomenology of of encountering film, that it's sort of a whole body experience and of thinking about not just um, you know like the the passive body sitting you know immobile in a dark theater like visually consuming images on a screen over there but like thinking about the body the space the image the sound like thinking of all of that together as a you know what teresa de la we would call like a technology of gender and um, Yeah, and so like really wanting to do work that called attention to the, um, you know, the the embodiment of the film consumer, you know, which often kind of gets effaced, you know, it's like you imagine yourself as this disembodied person consuming these images that are far away and not connected to you. And for me, sound, sound is the thing that bridges that gap between The distant image and the viewers you know or consumers embodiment you know that if it was loud it's like you feel it you feel the sound in your body you feel your flesh vibrating right and so I thought I want to have a really loud soundtrack um and you know I I I thought you know glitch it's like I want like a glitch electronica soundtrack because so much of What I was trying to show on the screen uh, was in some ways about like wanting to render visible the technical process of manipulating film as a material medium it's like I wanted people to see cuts I wanted people to be aware that you were watching film, you know, Um, not not kind of like surrender to the illusion of like, cause getting completely immersed in the film's world, but to have that experience of like, I am looking at a piece of film that is representing something on it, you know? Um, and out of that kind of aesthetic intent, um, I thought, well, anachronistic music at some level calls attention to the artificiality of the situation. It makes you aware that you are like, listening to a particular piece of music that doesn't just like sweep you away. You know, it's like it it, it creates a kind of critical distance. And that glitch in particular is the sonic equivalent, I think, of making, making aurally perceptible the way that you are technologically manipulating the medium of sound recording to like capture all of the little glitchy artifacts you know that that happen when you're recording and so I thought okay yeah so like yeah mostly 50s images of Jorgensen and her home movies and media appearances and sci-fi monster movies and you know UFO sightings and you know just like the whole you know atomic bomb blast you know kind like the whole whole 50s pop culture vernacular uh, but with a you know late 20th century early 21st century, Glitch electronica soundtrack that just you know slams into you um so yeah that that, that you know so far so good you know yeah. i think you know what i've managed to get done of it
1: yeah i um we love hearing the different themes that are involved when it comes to christine in the cutting room just from what we've seen and we can, we can tell that there's a very specific style, your style when it comes into, you know, adding all of these very nuanced elements into this project, this film. Um, so something that, you know, we're really curious about, something that I know a lot of our listeners are really interested in are, what are a lot of your muses, your inspirations, the, the cultural touchstones that, Um, you know, really shaped the way that you view art, how you create art, and, you know, just what you would recommend for people to watch or read, like, films, books, filmmakers, you know, all of the the pop culture and media that you would recommend?
2: Gosh, there is so much, you know, but I, I will say, frankenstein is like the gift that never stops giving you know i think mary shelley's novel is one of the you know not just like great works of science fiction you know but uh it's just a just a great novel and it's like it is so prescient in in how it deals with questions of technology and biomedicine and notions of the human and you know i mean it's just it the, the, the idea of the, I mean call it like the, you know, queer humanity of the artificially, you know, constructed, you know, non-human monster, you know. Um, for me, it's like, it's such a powerful touchstone for, you know, for trans experience, you know, that, that, and, you know, this, the thing that I have done that I'm probably best known for, I would say, is like writing this article 25 years ago called My Words to Victor Frankenstein Above the Village of Chamonix, which, you know, is kind of a performance piece about like embodying the location of the monster and talking about in something like the literary history of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but using that figure of the monster as a stand-in for transsexual experience and the ways that trans people are imagined as less than human because of the means and mode of our embodiments. And just feeling like it's, it's a really powerful thing. Like it is a powerful thing to be abjected from you know, human community and yet to return into sociality And this transfigured flesh that gives you um, you know, just if you don't disavow what that process of abjection and attribution of monstrosity, if you don't disavow what it teaches you, I just think it is such a powerful, you know, a powerful thing to be able to, to, to experience, you know, and that, you know, when you kind of like figure out your own power and stop giving a damn what anybody else thinks about you. Here's a touchstone. Um, Me and Bobby McGee, written by Chris Christopherson, performed by Janis Joplin. The line, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose, right? And you lose a lot by being trans, but you gain so much and like that sense of freedom of going like, yeah, you know, just like people who are gonna think I'm like a, you know, worthless subhuman, you know, piece of, trash who like shouldn't live and breathe the same air as them and I just think like you know like yeah you know like that's them it's like I'm gonna live you know it's just like and I, I just like reject the whole system of values that like positions me as less than you know and and um you know which doesn't always make it easier to like live while trans but it's just like in your heart of hearts where you just like know that you are free and that you reject the system that positions you as less than, and you try to live in a way that like brings into being other modes of life, you know, that aren't predicated on that value system that, you know, wants to subordinate you. So say Frankenstein, big, huge touchstone. Also, you know, back to the sort of suture and cut, Question. It's like just the image of that body, you know, the monster's body as the sutured, resown, you know, cut up, dismembered body that like achieves a different kind of life and how it is brought together. You know, it's like mm, so trans, you know, so trans. So that yes, you know, it's, it's a yeah, just a big, big inspiration for me. Uh, in terms of filmmaking, it's like you know, I'm I'm really fond of. Um, a San Francisco filmmaker, um, Craig Baldwin, uh, you know, who runs other cinema. Um, He distributes a lot of the Kuchar brothers films. He also makes his own films in this, you know, collage found footage style. Um, My favorite of his films is called Tribulation 99. I love it. it. Like it starts out like it's some cranky conspiracy film about, you know, the extraterrestrial lizard people who have, you know, colonized earth and live in their secret hideouts under the Andes Mountains. Um, but as the film continues, uh, you you see this like conspiracy theory actually becoming this very pointed um, political allegory uh, and critique of U.S. involvement in, uh, um Central and South America, you know, sort of trying to U- US attempts to you know, destabilize, you know, democratically elected regimes and you know, um, you know, in, in ways that make make things better for you know US-based transnational capital. So anyway, it's like I just think it's this tour de force of a film that like uses found footage to, in a very innovative way, to tell um, something that's like politically quite a quite biting uh, story if Christine in the Cutting Room is as good as Tribulation 99, I will, you know, I will die a happy person. Um, uh, it's, it's a big inspiration for me. And, and actually the a lot of the footage that I found that I edited into um, Christine in the Cutting Room, uh, I found through Craig Baldwin, you know, that he, run, he has this like vast archive of, um, you know, educational and industrial films, like stuff he's like scavenged from dumpsters or like bought at state sales or going out of business sales. And he will let you go into his archive and just like pull out footage, you know, cut it, you know, take the film. Um, what I did is I, I physically like cut film in his basement and then took it to a, a dub house and had it all digitized. And I brought the footage back to him, and we put it back in the in the in the the reels, you know, that he has in his archive. Um, I will also say, you know, I say like I edited. What I should really say is like Monica Nolan, the editor that I work with, edited all of this footage together. Monica is she, she's great. She's just somebody that I knew through the film scene in San Francisco. Uh, she worked as the editor on a film that I uh, co-produced. Um, this film by Michelle Lawler called "Forever's Gonna Start Tonight," which is about a drag entertainer um, at a bar in the Tenderloin called Aunt Charlie's. Um, and so I, I got to know Monica through that project. And when I was ready to work on Christine in the Cutting Room, I hired Monica, and you know she was a great. Collaborator, um, uh, you know, I I certainly did not have the technical skills uh, to do what I was um, hiring Monica to do for me. You know, I would say what I wanted, and then I would kind of quote unquote, you know, I direct the the edit, but she's the one who had, you know, you know, I said, you know, here's the footage, here's the voiceover, here's the concept. You know, it's just like images kind of like in this order and she would just like crank it out and she was she was so good. Um other filmmaking inspirations. Um you know like I love Guy Madden's stuff. Um Mark Rappaport, you know, like his his film uh from the diaries of Gene Seberg was actually an inspiration for me for the way I dealt with the Christine Jorgensen voiceover. The idea of like, oh, our viewpoint character is speaking from beyond the grave or they're commenting on their own career. You know, it's like, yes, that's it. That's that's how I solve the problem of, of, you know, having a viewpoint character. Maybe another thing to say is like, I have really loved in recent years, the way that animation has become such a, a powerful tool for documentary filmmaking. You know, like very innovative ways of not just, you know, doing the, you know, so-called, you know, Ken Burns effect of like pushing in slowly on, you know, a still image while, you know, Morgan Freeman does, you know, voice of God narration, you know, over it at a ponderous plotting style, you know, but it's like, but that you use, you use animation to fill the gap, you know, for visual storytelling when you don't um, have, you know, actual archival, footage you know it's like and you know i think people have been doing really really not, not just kind of compensatory things with animation but making animation um just an integral integral part of documentary filmmaking i i loved uh, the lady in the dale you know mm-hmm. the the um the film i was able or the series i was able to work on with zachary Drucker and duplass brothers for hbo and um the the animation that they use in that that series it's like they needed to do it because they were trying to like wrap up production when COVID hit and they just were not able to do some of the recreations that they had initially intended to do Uh, and it's like well you know we're just gonna have to do all of this remotely with all of us working from home and I think animation is gonna have to carry a lot of the story and the animation team that they worked with on that it's like it just became such an integral part of the overall visual design of the film, and it's like it carried so much of the um, the emotion. It's like oh, it's like it'll cut to like animation of a you know s- star filled sky. You'll see the viewpoint character kind of like you know going up into the heavens, and it has this sort of you know transcendent feeling. And it's like and it was all done through the style of the animation, you know, in a in a way that you know, you might not have the character saying something on screen that would give you like that same sense of like, you know, uplift or transcendence, but it's like, they're able to do that through the animation style. So yeah, I would say that's one of my, one of my most favorite things is uh, seeing how animation is just really, um, really rocking it these days in documentary filmmaking.
0: Agreed. And I think in the second episode of Pride, the FX series, animation was also used to um, show some of the, like the Cooper Donut rites or the Compton Cafeteria rights, which was, uh, and it was like narrated by Angelica Ross. And it was just, uh, I've been loving it as well. Yeah, I've been loving how animations uh, integrate into documentary because I think you can do so much with animation and be creative that you can't really redo in a dr- dramatic reenactment of um, a historical. Piece. and also you can mess around with archive footage like just how yeah. they did with Lady and Dale and I find that so fascinating um and it stays true to in a way to both the history and the style of storytelling yeah yeah agreed yeah um and so that kind of takes me to my question a little bit too about uh with uh, Liz Carmichael and then looking at public figures like Liz Carmichael or Christine Jorgensen how do you think uh their stories differ in terms of how media played a role. And in general, how has media today uh, played a role in representing uh, trans uh, trans individuals and the trans community?
2: Um, you know, I, I, I think Jorgensen was kind of um, she's kind of an, an exception, you know, that that, I mean there's She claims that she was non-consensually outed and that she had no idea that her story was gonna be as big as it was. And that's only half true. It's like, I I think she was actually quite hungry to be seen and that in spite of her denials, you know, public denials, she sort of privately admitted that she's the one who tipped off the, the newspapers to her story. I do think it's true that she had no idea how Big the story would become. It was like the level of publicity that she had totally changed her life. Um, You know, that she wasn't really able to be a private person after that. But I would say most trans people, you know, before the last, you know, couple of decades, maybe, um, typically did not out themselves to the press. You know, like if their story becomes known, it's because, you know, I mean, Something came out about them that they didn't want to have come out. You know that that um, that they were non-consensually outed, and that they're being outed was exploited in the press. You know to sell to sell newspapers. Um, you know that there was spectacle created around transness. You know, and that is you know that is by far been the um, you know the the dominant way that media has paid attention to trans people. I think what has really changed in recent years is that you just have more trans people with access to making stories about trans people um, and that you can tell stories in a more nuanced way um, and that you can tell stories that aren't necessarily about transition. You know, it's kind of like a lot of cis people who don't know much about trans people. It's kind of like, you think, well, a trans person, like that's a person who changes gender. I'm like, that's all that they do. Um, you know, like, it's the only story to tell about a trans person. It's like before, after, end of story, you know? Um, and that, you know, that trans people have full lives and interesting perspectives on things. And it's just like, there are plenty of stories you can tell about trans people or with trans people that don't have, um, you know, that that doesn't revolve around their being trans. Um, you know, I, I think for me, I think one of the breakthroughs uh, of that, that new opportunity to tell trans stories differently maybe started with um, the Wachowskis since eight. You know, we had Jamie Clayton playing a character who, who just happened to be trans, but it wasn't about her being trans. Yeah, um, so that was pretty cool. Uh, you know, you you start to see trans actors in roles that you know anybody could be in that role. I mean, like I I I watched um, not long ago. I watched the the film A Promising Young Woman. You know, um, and Laverne Cox plays a, a a coffee shop owner or manager. Um, and you know it's like there it's like if you didn't know that was Laverne Cox, you might not know she was trans. you know, it's like the the role wasn't about being trans, but if you, you know, knew the actor or maybe you like read her as trans, it's like, yeah, no big deal. It was just, you know, I, I love like that sense of the quotidianness and unremarkableness of just having trans people in some role um, in and in a film I you know in um. The you know Marvel Comics universe show um, um, uh, Jessica Jones. It's like, and I forget which season it was, second or third. It's like she gets a new secretary, and the secretary just happens to be a trans woman. And it's like it's not about her being trans; she's just a trans woman who's a secretary for a you know superhero, you know, Private Eye, um, and that's all. Um, I, I think. One of the other things that has has happened is like back to the lady in the Dale is that I think it's now more possible to tell stories about trans people who are not necessarily, you know, exemplary figures to be emulated, you know like complicated, messy people who just happen to be trans. And what I have found really interesting about that like particularly with the the lady in the Dale is that um, you can use the messy complications to actually educate the public you know that that you know for those of your listeners who haven't seen the lady in the Dale, of liz carmichael somebody who had been a career criminal i mean she was a con artist and a you know a counterfeiter and check kiter i mean you know she she had a, a long career as a small time hood um And she was trans, it's like, she transitions, you know and she just happened to be a trans person who was a criminal. Uh, And then she has this opportunity to um, uh, promote and market a, you know, supposedly revolutionary three-wheeled car, the Dale, you know, at the height of the energy crisis in the early 1970s. And the question becomes, it's like, well, you know was the car a scam, you know? And then it's kind of like, well, Maybe it started as a scam, but then, like, she actually came to believe in it. But, like, but well, there was some misrepresentation. It's like, so was it a crime? Was it fraud? Like, well, then you have the question of, like, well, was Liz Carmichael really a woman? Was she a man pretending to be a woman as part of a con? You know, and so, you know, it's complicated, you know, it's a complicated story. And so, but what we were able to do, I think, largely because, you know, the Duplass brothers were very sympathetic to telling trans stories. Zachary Drucker, one of the co-directors, is a trans woman. You know, they brought me in as a sort of you know consultant and talking head, you know, expert. And we were able to use the Liz Carmichael story to actually, you know, like ed- educate the audience on how to like think about trans topics with more sophistication. It's like, yes, she was a con artist. No, being trans was not a con, you know, she really was a trans person who happened to be a criminal, you know, might've been involved in a crime, her crime wasn't being trans, you know, she did things that drew a huge amount of media attention when she was outed, you know, that seems to be fueled by the fact that she was trans because other, you know, sort of white collar criminals perpetrating, you know, securities fraud, you know, didn't get the same kind of media attention so it's like it the whole thing just kind of becomes one like a you know rip roaring stranger than fiction true crime yarn and on the other hand it becomes a way that you can actually teach a lot of people you know millions of people to like read trans representation with more sophistication and compassion so you know to me like that's a great sweet spot you know and it's something that didn't exist um you know a few years ago we just did not have those kinds of opportunities to tell stories about trans people um one at that scale and two with that kind of sophistication
0: are there as we wrap up are there any stories that you're working on right now or any projects that you're working on right now that um you'd love to update the our listeners on to be lo- looking out for, or even if there's an update on Christine in the cutting room that you want people to know right now.
2: Well, on Christine in the cutting room, I mean my my front and center thing right now is I have a book that's under contract that I'm trying to finish up this calendar year. And I feel like once that's done, I will turn my full attention to filmmaking. And um, you know, I think no, I think I'm going to apply for grants, you know, for for the, the Jorgensen project. I don't necessarily see that as a big, you know, commercial project. It's a, you know, it's art house experimental cinema, you know, and I will just like make it as best I can. But the two things that are really um, the ones that I'm trying to develop on my own, it's like back to that conversation with Zachary Drucker and Laverne Cox about maybe doing a trans history documentary series. It's like, that is something that I'm quite interested in doing and have been working on a concept, sort of like a kind of high concept, open-ended um, trans history anthology show. And the other one is wanting to do a, um, a, a limited docu-series on um, Reed Erickson, who was a this fabulously wealthy trans guy in the mid twentieth century, who actually bankrolled a lot of the medical service providers back in the back in the sixties and seventies, um, kind of single handedly funded the you know development of a trans healthcare model. But apart from that, it's like he just lived a very interesting life i mean he ran early in his life in politically radical circles he his family sold their family yacht to fidel castro to use to launch the cuban revolution the grandma had been reed erickson family yacht and that's what castro you know sailed from Veracruz to cuba to launch the revolution um erickson was also um, um uh, a serious psychedelic drug user. He actually f- funded a lot of the early research into ketamine use, uh, you know, off label uses for ketamine, not as an anesthesia, but as a, you know, mind-altering substance. He, you know, was interested in human-animal, you know, interspecies communication. I mean, he just, he funded this guy John Lilly to, like, can people talk to dolphins, you know, a lot of that kind of research as well. And he, you know, he, he um, you know, he had this very esoteric worldview. And so like the the show would be about, well, all of the complexities of Reed Erickson's life. On the one hand, you know, kind of a nuts and bolts sort of, you know, engineer and invent- inventor who funds medical health care at the same, you know, trans medical care. And on the other hand, uh, is just a wild and wooly out there, you know, ketamine injecting, you know, talker to dolphins and um, explorer the mysteries of the cosmos kind of guy. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, I feel like I came within inches of getting it greenlit by a, a studio that eventually decided to pass on it because they said, uh, you know, it's like, it's a fully scripted historical costume drama kind of thing set in the eighties. And I think it's actually, you know, too big for us. Um, you know, it's like, you should take it to, you know a bigger, a bigger studio or production company but what else have you got for us? And we're like, I will get back to you you know, on that. So anyway, the, the, those are um, a couple of things that I'm, um, working on right now and I you know I feel you know like I'm just at an interesting place in in life where it's like I I feel like I've got more financial security than I have you know had in my life you know it's like I'm I'm kind of coming out the tail end of an you know academic career where I've you know made a good living as a professor and I'm not quite ready to retire but you know it's like the, the success I've managed to have thus far, I think sets me up in a really interesting way to try to you know enter filmmaking at an age that it's like maybe like a little late to break into the game, you know? I think it's a young person's game uh, and I'm increasingly not a young person anymore. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think it'll be an interesting challenge to see if I can, um, yeah, manage to get a show to run or write or produce. So we'll see.
1: Well, we can't wait until that appears, that materializes. We are looking forward to it. And we will be following along. And for any of our viewers, listeners who want to follow along and check out Susan Stryker's work, we are putting it in our descriptions. We are very Happy to have Susan here with us to talk about her career, all of her filmmaking, and all of the historic work that she's done.
2: Well, thank you, Nick, and thank you, Lena. You know, it's been a a fun chat. So thanks for having me on.